0: In the last two episodes, I discussed how Faustin Seuc managed to hold on to real power, unlike the previous four presidents. He'd crushed the colored elites, while at the same time preventing the black social revolutions his supporters believed he would enable. With his power firmly established, Saluc could turn his attention elsewhere. So in this episode, I'm going to discuss what Saluc did with all his power. Before I go into all that stuff, though, I want to begin this episode by talking about what was going on in the eastern part of Hispaniola, an area which I have been neglecting to talk about in the last few episodes. So before I go into Saluk's failed invasions, I want to provide some context and history for what had been going on in the newly formed Dominican Republic since it had broken away from Haiti. To talk about the first Dominican Republic, I have to introduce the two guys who would define its 20-year history. The first of these guys is a man named Pedro Santana. He was born in what is today Haiti, but when he was three, his white Spanish family had fled to avoid Dessalines genocide. He was an illiterate shepherd who would join the rebellion against Gerard. He was also a brilliant military strategist. When Gerard invaded in 1844, Santana had emerged as a war hero. After this, Santana took his army and marched on Santo Domingo City and dissolved the government that had created itself after the revolution, then proclaimed a new, very liberal constitution, with a president elected every four years. But he inserted a clause allowing for him to declare a state of emergency which would give him dictatorial power which he, of course, then did. He ruled for the next four years, but then resigned because of plots and discontentment caused by his policies. So in 1844, a new guy became president. The next year, Seleuc invaded. At the beginning of the invasion, the new president messed up the situation so badly that soon Seleuc's conquest looked inevitable. So the new president called on Santana to lead a small Dominican army against Saluc. As I talked about last episode, Saluc was then forced to retreat in the face of both bad logistics and defeats. Santana, now a two-time war hero, then marched on the capital city again and overthrew the very unpopular president. But he didn't want to assume the presidency himself, and so it was put up to an election. This election resulted in the victory of a man named Bayas. So, Bayas is the other important guy. Buenaventura Bayas was a relatively young and energetic man, who, in contrast to Santana, was one of the wealthiest people in the DR. He had been one of the leaders of the rebellion against Herard, but he was more of a politician than a soldier. Bayas, as well as many other Dominicans, didn't really think that the DR could or should be its own country. What he wanted was the annexation of the DR by a foreign power, specifically France or the United States. There were several reasons for this, but the main ones were that it was just such a small country and because they were terrified of being conquered by Salouk. While these colonial powers refused to annex Santo Domingo, they, especially like the United States, did see Santo Domingo as an opportunity for future economic expansion especially since Santo Domingo had much looser laws around white immigration and was far emptier than its neighbor, Haiti. It was actually fear of Santo Domingo becoming a colony that partially motivated Salouk's invasions, including new plans for a second invasion in 1850. But as Salouk was preparing for another invasion, the DR received recognition from foreign powers, who then turned around and checked Salouk, the first envoy the Americans sent to Haiti, was sent in 1850 to tell Salouk not to mess with the DR. This was repeated by the French and the British, threatening military force if Salouk invaded the DR again. So a second invasion of the DR was cancelled after being strong-armed out of it by France, Britain, and the United States. With prodding from foreign powers, Salouk and the DR then concluded a peace treaty for a one-year ceasefire. Salouk's repeated invasions of the DR, as I talked about last episode, are another example of him following in the footsteps of leaders like Dessaline. In fact, most of what Salouk had been doing so far had been fairly in line with what the previous black leaders had done, but he breaks from them as well as from all the colored leaders on one important subject, religion, under Louverture, Dessaline, Christophe, Pétion, and Boyer, voodoo the religion of the peasants, had been suppressed in favor of Catholicism. But under the extreme political up- instability of the 1850s, voodoo began to make its way out into the open. Pirot, one of the one-year presidents, was married to the voodoo priestess who had presided over the boy-came-on ceremony. For another example, Acou's peasant revels were heavily influenced by both Catholicism and voodoo. Aku himself claimed that God had given him orders, while the guy responsible for the quote that the rich black is colored as the poor colored is black was a voodoo priest. Suluk so himself was a voodooist, and under him, voodoo was allowed to grow and expand in Haiti. And beyond tolerating voodoo, Suluk so actively encouraged voodoo. As emperor, he made himself the head of the Haitian church and the leader of Haitian voodoo. He even went so far as to try to create a kind of cult of personality around him and his family. Through this, he used voodoo for many things. Voodoo was used by him to establish legitimacy and to create a connection between him and the common people. He tried to use it to create a national identity for Haitians. This project was helped quite a bit by, get this, three miraculous apparitions of the Virgin Mary was a major symbol in both voodoo and Catholicism. On one of the sites where she had appeared, Salouk even made it into a pilgrimage site, which survives to this day. What Salouk tried to do with religion, with varying degrees of success, was to establish a unified voodoo Haitian religion that could support him. While I'm on the subject of groups Salouk took control of, I may as well shoehorn in something about the Freemasons. Now, I'm not going to go far into the Freemasons, but with Salouk at their head, the Freemasons expanded in Haiti. There were four Masonic lodges in Port-au-Prince, and there were even Haitians present at the Masonic International Congress. Another thing that I talked about last episode was how Salouk had declared himself emperor, but had not yet held his coronation. Salouk wanted to have a grand coronation, but for this he needed a bishop, which required an agreement with the Vatican. This resulted in a total of three failed missions from the Vatican to Haiti to work out some kind of deal where the Haitian church would become a part of the International Catholic Church. Previous missions like these had been attempted, but all of them, including Salouk's, failed because Haitian leaders like Salouk didn't want to see appointments of clergy to the vatican but in 1852 saluk retired of waiting for a bishop and so decided just to use an abbot he knew for the coronation saluk's coronation as i am about to describe may sound simply like a vanity fest but like Christoph's coronation it is important to note that saluk wasn't just holding it for fun in fact, the idea of royalism was a key component in his political philosophy. In the eyes of Saluc, the elitist colored democracy had shown itself to be a failure under Boyer and Herard, and it was time for Haiti to return back to black royalism. The hatred of the people for Dessalines and Christophe had kind of worn off over the years, and so Salouk was trying to claim their legacy. He wanted to be a populist king with the support of his people. This idea of popular royalism may sound bizarre to the modern listener, but up until this point, the various quote-unquote democratic Haitian governments had not been very popular. Salouk also wanted to cultivate an image in the minds of the world. He wanted both Haitians and foreigners to view himself as a strong leader of a modern civilized country. So that is why he did this. Salouk had shelled out, a ton of money on his coronation. He had a temporary church built. He constructed a throne room with a marble floor. He had an imperial tent built. He spent a ton on his scepter, crown carriage, and other expensive items. On April 18, 1852, Saluk held his coronation. At 1 a.m., the city was awoken by a salvo of artillery shots. At 3 a.m., the military deputies from across the empire gathered at the coronation grounds. At 4 a.m., the legislators and senators joined them, accompanied by pikemen and cavalry. At 6 a.m., they were all joined by foreign representatives, invited to watch the spectacle. At around 8 and 9-ish, the military gathered. And finally, at 10 a.m., Saluk's abbot blessed the imperial crown, scepter, and sword. And so, lifted the crown and placed it upon himself, and then crowned his wife empress. He then gave a speech. He proclaimed that he had created the empire to, quote, maintain integrity and independence, unquote, and, quote, to not suffer under any other pretext the return of slavery, nor of any measure of feudality contrary to the liberty and exercise of civil rights and politics of the people of Haiti and to no government in sight of the interest, the goodness, and the glory of the Haitian family, of which I am the chief. Unquote. This was followed by a 101-gun salvo, as the artillery of the city discharged. Then, at 3 p.m., he, he addressed his newly formed nobility, and at 6 p.m., he toured the city from his carriage and threw money into the crowds that had gathered for him. This coronation kicked off partying across the country, similar in scale to that of the first Independence Day celebrations. Everyone joined in, either out of love for Saluk or out of fear. Saluk was showing himself to be the popular monarch he believed he was. He was at the climax of his power. Like Christoph's coronation, Saluk's coronation had, has been criticized heavily as a total joke in America and Europe. Racists seized on it to try to show that democracy had failed in an emancipated society. Among Haitian historians, this coronation has been more fairly criticized as an expensive waste of money. It cost a total of 4 million gourds, which is far more than the annual budget had been under Boyer. For some more comparison, the budget for education was about 10,000 cords per year. In addition to just the coronation, Saluk's nobility was also very expensive. And then, for what? It didn't really have the desired outcome Saluk had hoped for. In the moment, it may have felt as though this coronation had shown his power and strength to his subjects, but in the long term, Saluk's popularity would would start to falter. After the one-year ceasefire between the Haiti and the DR expired, talks continued. They were interrupted in 1854 when, in order to prod Salouk in the right direction, a French fleet showed up. It threatened to bombard the palace, which made Salouk go into a state of frenzy. But this threat received no fear from the populace or military, both of whom were loosening their attachment to Salouk. There were other interruptions, such as when Saluc cursed out a Dominican for wearing a hat inside the palace, a practice which Saluc had banned. But Saluc and the Dominicans were never able to reach a deal. And so, in the winter of 1855, Saluc decided to once again try his hand at an invasion of the Dominican Republic. Santana was, however, elected to succeed Béas, and he used his emergency dictatorial powers to suppress Béas and his allies, creating a rivalry that would continue through the next decade. His third and final invasion would turn out to be a disaster for Seleuc. But to understand why, I have to explain what was going on with the Haitian army when Seleuc attempted this invasion. The Haitian army was probably around 30,000 strong, made up of conscripted peasants. This is in contrast to the Dominican army of seven to 8,000. While the Dominicans were fighting on their home turf, the Haitian army was fighting on unknown land and had a terrible logistical system that deprived it of food and ammunition. On another level, the Dominican army knew that they had were fighting to protect their country and their families from an enemy which had already shown its total inhumanity in previous invasions. This is in contrast to the Haitian military, which didn't really know what it was fighting for. The point I'm getting at here is that the Haitian military just wasn't what it used to be. The generation of Haitian soldiers that had fought through the revolution and civil war was now gone, and it was replaced with a much weaker army. So in the winter of 1855, Salouk invaded the Dominican Republic with an army of 30,000, which was divided into three columns. On December 22nd, the Haitian army suffered two defeats. While individual desertions had always been common, soon entire units began deserting. Then, in late January, the Haitians were decisively defeated after falling for a Dominican trap, causing Salouk to retreat back to Haiti. In the end, this campaign left thousands of Haitians dead, deserted, or wounded, and proved to be a total waste. This campaign showed everyone the real weakness of Saluk, Where previously the people had loved him and his enemies had feared him, his myth was failing. And so next episode, Saluk will be overthrown.